All right, Titus chapter two now. We're making our progress through Titus. Doing pretty good. Chapter a year, that's not too bad. <laughs> Well, we cover so much other mm -hmm. verses. Cover a lot of stuff in there. A lot of verses other than just titles. Well, let's ask the Lord's blessing one more time as we open his word and stand before him. Father, thank you for your goodness to us and for this opportunity once again to open your word. I pray that you will speak to us through your word in spite of the weakness and the struggles and the problems of the speaker, that you would be pleased to bless this time and to use it in our lives to exalt and magnify our blessed Savior. We thank you for him. Thank you for the privilege that we have to assemble before him in his name. And I ask that he would speak to us this morning through his word, and ask it in his name with thanksgiving. Amen. Well, we're in Titus chapter 2, and we've gone through this quite a bit, so I'm not going to belabor looking back too much. We start at verse 1, chapter 2, and Paul writing to Titus uh, says, But as for you, speak those things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Let's stop there for just a moment. And that put that in the context, he says, but as for you, which puts this statement to Titus in contrast to those individuals that he has been referring to in the previous chapter, those that are recalled, called uh, rebellious, many rebellious men, people who must be silenced, those who are working to upset the families in the church, uh, they, they are those who make profession to know God, but they deny him. They're called detestable, disobedient, worthless. Uh, they're enemies of righteousness. And so in this text, the writer, uh, Paul, is telling Titus, in contrast to them, but as for you, you need to be speaking those things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And we've already belabored that, but I can't go through it without saying a little something about that idea of sound doctrine, which we've talked about, I know. When he talks about sound doctrine, he's using a phrase that means healthy doctrine, doctrine and truths of the scripture, truths that come from the scripture that are kind of a, a distillation and a communication of what God has said. This morning in Sunday school, we were talking about the Pharisees, the teachers, those that thought mistakenly so that they were right, that they were ready for the kingdom of heaven, that they were ready on the road to being with the father, sitting down with Abraham. And they remember they were accusing Jesus of taking his own life, which was a way of saying he was going to end up going to hell. And actually the truth is reversed, but it got me thinking about the power of unbelief. Paul tells us in, in Corinthians that the natural man, the unsaved man, the unsaved person does not, will not, cannot, uh, gain, understand, and perceive the things dealing with the Spirit of God. They are, they are things that are spiritually discerned, and you have to have the Spirit to be able to discern these things. And so we're in a, 
in a situation where we are living as dead people and the only life that we have is the word of God that comes to us from the scriptures. And so my encouragement is if we want to have the truth in our lives, we need to go to it. We need to open the Bible to invest some time in the word to understand the scriptures and to let the scriptures begin to enlighten us so that we will not be deceived as those Jews were. So much depends on that. Here, Paul is telling Titus, but as for you, communicate those things which are fitting, which are in according with, which uh, stand alongside and support sound doctrine, support the truths of scripture as they are articulated from scripture, so on and so forth. And then he divides, he talks to the church and he divides the church up into groups. And I thought about that. What's the best way? You know, we could divide it up into Republicans or Democrats, but that would only be a political evaluation. Or we could divide it up into male and females, which he does in one sense. But we're not pitting the men against the women, per se. Um, we could divide it up into races. But then again, the, the scripture doesn't divide and hold people from one race to another as being in competition with each other. So he divides it up here, I thought was an interesting way in which you cover the whole gamut, but in each particular area, there may be a little bit of a, a unique focus. He divides up older men, older women, young women, young men. And then down in verse nine, he introduces bond slaves and masters. And that's that has nothing to do with age. And it got me wondering, hmm, wonder why he divides the congregation up mentioning bond slaves and masters, but then probably that's because in that society, a major portion of, of uh, people in the church were involved in slavery, and there were a few who were masters. And so he's covering this area here um, that deals with the occupation that would be a predominant occupation among those in the church. And so he divides it up in those groups, and we're going to look at those groups. And we started out the other day by looking at older men if you remember that and he he mentions a few things about them they're aged uh he talks about that we, we talked about that but the fact that there is a, a matter of respect that should go to older people and when we look at older women that will be the same thing we would be talking with the respect that is due people who have lived a long time and that there is a matter of wisdom that they, they accrue in that age they are temperate that idea has to do with the uh, abstaining from wine and things of this nature. They tend to control their passions. They're dignified. That is, they're honorable, uh, vulnerable type of people. They're sensible. Uh, Self-discipline may be a good word to put with that. They're sound in faith. That is healthy. They, they take the faith that, that they have embraced and they take it seriously in accordance with the scriptures. Uh, they, they are those that display God's love, God's love to each other, able to bear one another's burdens. And uh, remember, love is patient, love is kind, love is not jealous, so on and so forth. They display that characteristic of love to each other and to other people, not just to believers, but to other people as well. And then the last thing that he talks about the older men is they persevere. They are steadfast. They don't bail out or quit when it gets rough or tough but they are steadfast and they are faithful. 
we looked at that, so I'm not going to belabor that. Then we come to our second group, which is the older women. And we started, we're, we're looking at that beginning today. The older women, verse 3, likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women. Older women, like older men, are to be respected. Um, the scriptures um, are clear that, that that is true. And in fact, Paul says in Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, he talks, it starts out with older men. He says, do not rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to younger men as brothers, even if you are rebuking them because they are wrong, to do it with gentleness and with kindness. And then he says, and the older women, if you're confronting or talking to an older woman and you correct her, correct her as a mother, which means with respect, with gentleness, with love. Um, and so here's a, a statement that uh, at the very beginning, the outset, just older women are those who are due respect and due honor in the fellowship, just like the older men are. And it is important to take them uh, seriously and uh, to have respect for them. Now, I was wondering, and I began to, I was looking at, I looked at John MacArthur's commentary, and I thought he had a, a good thing to say about it. I was wondering at what age we would put down for older women. Now, I realize in this church, we don't have any older women, but we do have a number of older men. And uh, so what would be the correct age that we would put for older women? John, John MacArthur suggests, uh, and I think it's a good statement, uh, that while the scripture is silent here, that the childbearing age generally ends with women around 40 to 45. And uh, it takes approximately 20 years to raise a child from infancy up to adulthood. And so if you add 20 years to that 40 or 45, you come up with around 60 or 65. I see some expressions in the church, the congregation. I'm not sure if we need to talk about that any further, but the uh, age 40, 60 or 65 may be a good age to assume when he's talking about older women. What would be the age that we talk about? Uh, Timothy does say, Paul does say to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, talking about widows being put on a list for support. He says in 1 Timothy 5, 9, a widow is to be put on the list if, uh, only if she is not less than 60 years old. So maybe that is a good statement, a good reasonable age to put around 60 or 65. My grandmother, who was a godly woman, she's, I, I attribute my salvation and ministry, going to ministry to her prayers because she prayed for me a lot. Um, she told me she did too, and I knew that. But um, she made the statement one time, but she made it several times. Let me just take my phone, be sure that thing is cut off so it doesn't go off. She made the statement one time in my hearing that um, there's nothing any sweeter than a sweet Christian godly lady because she can see things and do things and, and pursue things to help people and to encourage people. She knows the emotions and so on and so forth. And she said, but conversely, there's nothing any meaner than a mean, conniving, scheming woman because she can think of things to do to bring irritation to bring division 
to start gossip and things like that to irritate. And I thought that was an interesting, interesting thing that she said about it. I've often thought about that, uh, that here we are talking about older women and we have a great potential, a rich variety of, uh, of people with potential in the church when you have older people, particularly among the ladies. John says, and, and I'm quoting from his commentary, he said, Paul de declared that a Christian widow more than 60 years old who had no family to support her and who was, who has, watch this, fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. One who is faithful and a godly wife and a mother and who has shown hospitality to strangers and washed the saints' feet and assisted those in distress and has devoted herself to every good work She's one that's worthy of support in the church, and she is destitute for the church because she's given her life to helping people and to serving people in the name of Christ. And um, which kind of brings the surface to the surface the idea of what do we do with our time? I've been really asking the Lord to help me. You know, you look. I've been talking about the parable of the sower, where you have the parable of the, the sowing the seed of the gospel in four kinds of soils, which represent four kinds of hearts. And one of them is called the, the heart that is infected with weeds, where the gospel is sown, but then the loves, the pleasures, the joys, the distractions of, of the world come in, and they choke the seed out so that the gospel is not fruitful. And I've been asking the Lord, I say, How, am I fruitful? Is there fruit in my life? And it bothers me. I don't see the fruit that I would like to see in my life. You understand what I'm saying? And I don't want to be unfruitful. I want my life to bear fruit. And I can see that there are lots of things. That's why I keep talking. I've mentioned to you several times that uh, having more funds than I've had in a long time can be a distraction rather than a blessing in one sense because it can, can take your mind off of the things that really matter. And put them on the things that are secondary. The Bible says, "Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world." Amen. Loves the world, the love of the Father is not in it. And uh, you can you can have all these things that are in your life that get your focus off of what really matters onto other things. And I don't want that in my life. And so I, that's a that's an issue. I think it's an important issue. The old women here are those who have. Um, the ability to teach, they have the ability to encourage, to work with people, they, they use their time uh, to, to do good things to other people. The one that comes to my mind often by way of illustration for that is Betty Lou Teasdale. Uh, because um, whenever time we'd go up to the Master's Mission for our retreats and things like that, and almost I can never remember an exception to this, that in the morning when we'd gather up our Bible study, uh, near the end of the Bible study, she would come up, she would pop in, and she'd say, how you doing? Everything's doing fine. Said, By the way, there's a big pot down there, a plate down there of hot, freshly made cookies or buns or something like that. She said, I just didn't, I just making putting those together so you can have them. She never, we never asked her to do it. It was never expected, but she always did it. And uh, you can do things like that for people. You know, if you have a neighbor or something that's going through some tough times to do something like that to help, or if there's somebody in the hospital, or if there are kids that are wayward and need help. I remember Jim York is telling me uh, in the church that he grew up, he was kind of a wild kid. Still is, if he's listening. But anyway, and um, I can remember him telling me he was, he was running down the aisle of the church one day, and this lady, this Jewish lady was there that he knew real well. And as he ran by, she grabbed him by the arm, dragged him back, and said, come here, Jim. She said, what's going on in your life? He'd been having some pretty 
getting some pretty serious trouble and stuff like that. And he said, nothing. She said, yes, it is. Something's going on in your life. He says, no, no, yes, yes, it is. Because she said, every time I come to your name in my prayer list, the Lord won't let me leave you. I keep praying and keep bringing you up. So I know there's something going on. So then he began to tell a little bit about what the struggles that he was going on, that he was having a struggle with obedience and having a struggle with submission to some teachers and other things like that. People care. And when you care and you pray for people and you're involved in that, both older men and older ladies, right now we're looking at older ladies, there, is, there are something, there are things you can do to be involved in people's lives and to display the love of Christ in other people's lives. And so, uh, and that's true, talking about these ladies here who are godly. He goes on to say that they are reverent in their behavior. Reverent uh, almost comes to being holy. They are, I think one of the translators said, could translate that priest-like. A person that is a priest uh, goes before God on behalf of the people, but he needs to go and, and dressed in righteousness. Um, and so it, it's priest-like. It's, it's um godly in their behavior that he uses that word behavior there uh it has a wide reference i guess that talks about one's demeanor um it has to do with conduct in all aspects and all occasions um her deportment is that of being a christ-like life on all occasions and uh, that reflects the likeness of christ and that doesn't come by determination to be religious that doesn't even come by the determination just to do good things i was thinking about that the other day that i need to to talk to my neighbors i'm always so busy and yet you need to care for people you need to make time for people and that's just really important and um your time is very valuable to give to people like that and so to give yourself and to give your time like that you're, you're, that is important christ like like christ he always had a schedule, but he was never beyond the interruptions that came in that schedule because those interruptions came from heaven. And they were God-ordained and they were used. And so there are a lot of women in the Bible, you know, I, I, like this. I think of uh, the father and mother of John the Baptist, Zacharias and Elizabeth. Remember John the Baptist? And remember that they were, they were beyond the childbearing age. They were both very godly uh, people, descendants of Aaron. Um, really had a real heart for the Lord, but she had that stigma, Elizabeth did, of being barren. And the Jews, no matter what you said, the Jews put that stigma that there was something wrong in her life because she, God had not let her bear children. And while it was never, you know, people didn't come out and point the finger of accusation, yet it was always there. Sometimes it may be a little subtle remark among the ladies or whatever, and whatever. She didn't have children. That was a stigma that she had to bear. But eventually, the Lord honored that because he was saving her to be the mother of the forerunner of the Messiah, <laughs> which is a pretty significant position of honor. And so she was a godly woman. She was involved in that, even though at times it could have been questioned. There is Anna in the New Testament, the Luke, book of Luke. And the Luke chapter 2, verse 36 talks about when the parents brought Jesus after his birth, the late day to be circumcised in the keeping of the law. And so here they come. And it says there was this prophetess, Anna, this is woman who, who being a prophetess, would, would spend time in prayer and receive things sometimes that came from the Lord. And so there was this woman, Anna. She was the daughter of Phanuel, 
of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years. That means she was old, which qualifies in our text here. And he had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. So they'd been married seven years. And then her husband died. She became a widow at the age, and she was a widow now up to the age of 84. And it says that she never left the temple. She was serving the Lord night and day with fasting and prayers. I know a little bit about fasting, not a whole lot, but I know a little bit about fasting. And I fast when it's something that means a lot to me. And I pray for people or whatever. But she was there night and day and doing this. And so she had a very close walk with the Savior. And it just happened, as luck would have it, that she was there when Jesus came into the temple being brought in, right? It wasn't luck at all. Is because she was had a close walk with the Savior, and the Lord knew that this was kind of a, a special reward for her. And so here was she, she was, and at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And she was his redemption is the coming of the Messiah. And so she was there in the temple when the when the Christ was born. Listen to me. The closer you walk with the Lord, the more blessings you receive from his presence and from walking with him. And it's really important because there are a lot of distractions in the world, a lot of things that, that take us, take our attention, take our focus and grab for our attention. <clears throat> and they take it away from, from the things that matter. And so we want to give forth a, an effort to really put a priority on that time with the Lord and that walk with the Lord and focus on that, build habits in your life not habits of indulging the flesh but habits of walking with the lord and spending time with the lord because it's the best life it really is the best life and it's just really really important what does psalm uh 37 say delight yourself in the lord how do you do that we, we, we if you just spend time thinking about the lord you think well, i've had people say it's just boring well god has a lot of things in the scripture but the one thing he's not is boring and uh, if you spend time with him and focus on him and if there's a reward that comes in that fellowship and that growth and that pursuit of him. And so here's this, this, this picture of this woman, Anna, and she is in the temple and she is there. You need to be with the Lord. You need to be with his people in church, too. That's a very important part of growth and the fellowship and of encouragement. It makes a big difference. It makes a difference. And, you know, God has given us that. He's told us to do that for a reason. So older women, he says, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. And then he says, not malicious gossips. Malicious gossip referring, talking about one word is the word diabolos in scripture. And it's a word that means slanderer. Paul uses that in two passages to, talking about people. Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.11, talking about women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate. He talks about uh, men in, first, in 2 Timothy 3, 2, which says, Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips. Right? The word slander, you, you recognize probably, as I did, the Greek word diabolos, because that is the word that's used so many times to speak of the devil. That's his name. Uh, that is, uses his name. Matthew 4, 5. Then the devil, that's Diabolos, took him to the holy city and uh, had him stand in the pinnacle of the temple. Uh, Jesus, we talked this morning about 
the Jews. Jesus said, you're of your father, Diabolos, the accuser. Uh, John 13, 2, during the supper, the Diabolos, having already put into the heart of Jesus, Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, Acts 13, Saul, who was on the road to Damascus, and Saul, who was known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, now this is, this is on the Isle of Cyprus when he was on his first journey. He talked about this guy, Jairus. He said, um, I believe that was right. He said, you are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you son of Diabolus, you enemy of all righteousness, you will not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord. You remember that passage, he calls him Diabolus. So the point is, he's telling us here in two places, not to be malicious gossip, not to be a slander or something that is used of the devil. Don't, don't do that. Don't let that be true of you. Um, and that reminds us, that brings us down to something that we've talked about before, and I just need to say something about it again, and that is the problem with the tongue. Because the tongue is that small part of the body that James tells us is like a giant rudder, isn't it? And that it sets in direction the whole life, the ship, the rudder. Uh, it's like a small spark that that spark can set a flame of fire and create damage. And James says that that tongue is set a fire from hell. And so you just be careful. Jesus tells us that the tongue, the mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. What is in the heart comes out of the tongue. And so here is a warning to these women not to be a false slander, to watch their tongue. Psalm 15, 1, talking about the tongue, says this. It says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent, in your fellowship, to be with you and your people? Who may dwell in your holy hill, in your, in your mountain, where you dwell, where you worship, where your people worship? Who is the one that can do that? He who walks with integrity, that's his walk, his life. He who works righteousness, that's the product of his life and what he's working for. He who what? Speaks the truth. Where's the truth? We talked about this morning in God's word. He who speaks the truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, but he takes up reproach against, and not, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. So the point is that the tongue, the mouth, is one, one of the barometers that God has given us to measure our heart, to measure our life. What comes out of your mouth? What do you talk about? What does your conversation say about your relationship with the Lord? You understand? That's really important. Um, Psalm 34, um, come you children, this is our, verse 11, Psalm 34, 11, come you children, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the, who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Who is this guy? He's the one that keeps your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Keeps your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Uh, conversely, Psalm 37 says, verse 30, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. So the mouth, the tongue, pours forth what's in the heart, either wisdom, righteousness, justice, or evil, corruption, and uh, accusation, slanders, okay? So it's the, what, what comes out of our mouth is important. That's why when Paul evaluates the human race, and he talks about the non-righteous, no, not one, there are none to understand, there are none who seek for God, all have turned aside, together become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. He says this, their throat is an open grave, open 
the stench of rotten bodies comes out of that grave. Their throat is an open grave with their tongues. They not only deceive, but they keep deceiving. They keep lying. The poison of snakes is under their lips. They speak, and there's poison that comes out of their mouth, and their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. He goes on to talk about the feet and other things like that, but the tongue and the throat is very, very major part of the evaluation of the human heart. Uh, Proverbs says, the mouth of the righteous flows with wisdom, but the perverted tongue can be cut out, so on and so forth. So here's a warning to the ladies about malicious gossips uh, and slandering. Older women are to guard your mouth as you, and uh, just as you would your ears, which brings up the thing is not just what comes out of our mouth but what we allow to go in our ears and i think of i was trying to think of an illustration to illustrate that quickly and i thought of the the children of israel doing the accusations by the jews of jesus and they kept saying he was belzebub he cast out demon by the power of belzebub and they kept making accusations and they persuaded the people people listened to their leaders they persuaded the people to end up killing their own messiah which is a pretty severe thing so there is a there is a lot to be said not only for what comes out of the mouth but what you allow to go in your ears when going in your ears it goes into your mind and uh, that's that's another thing too what you put in your life and put in your mind it is has a real influence you understand so that's what he's that's what we want, we want to make then he goes on to say not only malicious gossips but a, not a slave not, nor a slave to much wine bringing uh Wine bringing us into bondage, making the, the idea of being enslaved means to be brought into bondage, um, making making someone a slave, uh, bringing into subjugation. Wine can do that. Wine has that ability to do that. And so that word is used, by the way, it's used of the children of Israel in Acts 7, 6, that they were enslaved in Egypt. It's used in 1 Corinthians 9, 19. When Paul says, I am free for all men. I make myself a slave. I put myself into bondage to all so that I might win, win some. I become a slave to that, and that's, that's a good way of using it. But it's a bad way in many, many respects. There are many. Well, listen to what Peter says. You know, what, you know these verses. But Peter says, um, talking about false prophets in the context, he says they're promising people freedom. They're promising people that they can provide the religious answers to their lives and and give them a direction and freedom promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to righteousness for by what a man is watch this overcome by this he is entrusted talking about sin being a slave to sin overcome by sin becoming a slave not to righteousness but a slave to, to sin the bible says we want to be a slave to righteousness uh, Titus, uh, and we're in Titus 2, but Titus 3 says, we were once foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts. That describes what we were like before conversion. We were slaved to various, and you know that's true. Is that Can you see that in the world? Can you see people being enslaved to entertainment, enslaved to lust, enslaved to sex, enslaved to drugs, enslaved to everything? And it just, it, 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 it captivates us. It's easy to do that. Um, Paul says in Romans 6, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey, notice that word, obey 
It's lust. Sin becomes a master and we obey the master. Don't let sin reign in your body that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body. Here again, there's a worship scene. You have members, you present them like you would present an offering. You present the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. In contrast, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's Romans 6, verses 12. Verse 14 says, For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under law, but you are under grace. And so we want to present ourselves because sin wants to dominate. And sin wants to take over. Romans, down to verse 18 of Romans 6, he goes on to say, having been freed from sin, you have become the slaves of righteousness. That's the power of the gospel. It's able, it's able to break that enslavement to sin. Sometimes we kind of want to go back into it. I mean, let's be honest. There are things about sin that are fun. And, and sometimes we want to live in, live in that and pursue that instead of pursuing the Lord. But the end of that pursuit of living in flesh is death. That's what Galatians 6 says. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows that, and that alone he will reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will from the flesh reap what? Death. But if you sow to the spirit, you from the spirit reap life. And so, speaking in human terms, he says, the weakness of your flesh, just as you present your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness. I'm reading Romans 6. Um, 18 resulting in further lawlessness and now so now present your members as slaves to righteousness present yourself as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification in other words growth but when you were slaves of sin you were free uh, in regard to righteousness that is you were you were disconnected if you were from the benefits of righteousness therefore what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you now are ashamed you were ashamed of those things and uh, what benefit do they give you? None. But the outcome of those things is death, produces it. So now you have been freed from sin and you're a slave to God. And you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So what we want to say here is in this picture that he's giving to us about being enslaved is not being enslaved to anything. And here the counsel is to women being enslaved to wine and also to the men too. It talks about the leaders that matters about the wine. I have seen that firsthand. I think actually enslavement to strong drink occurs at a younger age rather than an earlier age, but I think it can progress because I know experientially how um, as a young person you can enjoy drink. It's the days, what does the song say? Days of wine and roses, uh, days of, of uh, beauty and attractiveness and fun, and it adds a lot of sparkle maybe to your, to your evening or whatever. But I also know that it becomes not just something that is an addition, but a pursuit to make life seem a little bit more pleasant, a little bit easier. And that becomes a dominant thing. And I saw it, uh, how it took over my father's life. And I've talked to people that which it is, it is literally swallowed them alive. And it will, it can do that. The Bible just gives a good caution about that. And it's a caution we should take seriously. Uh, drunkenness is a common thing today. And it usually begins at an earlier age. And uh, it's, I've talked to people that would give anything in this world to go back to the days when they could deal with it and stop. You understand what I'm saying? So it's, just, it's important. And uh, I, I pray about that. 
I, I don't go out drinking or anything like that, but I know that there are always things and opportunities to do things like that. And I would just want to be careful. You understand what I'm saying? I just want to be careful. And uh, so I, I don't have a secret life in that area. I'm just telling you, there are, by the way, there are a lot of things here that can become secret, like pornography is another one that can become a secret life. Uh, something that enslaves us, takes us captive and actually kills that relationship with God, destroys us. And, say, and it will swallow you alive. And so these are things we got to move on. Uh, not only uh, enslaved to much wine, but teaching what is good. Teaching, as a teacher, I can tell you that it takes effort. It takes time. It takes forethought. It takes intention. And I think teaching in the church always has a moral purpose. Uh, even... I'm thinking of women now, even if a woman takes like the girls in Sunday school class and takes them home, teaches them how to fix cookies or fix desserts and all that, you wouldn't think that showing them how to make chocolate chip cookies is has a moral purpose. But it can have a moral purpose, and it does, because you're trying to make friends. You understand? And you're trying to, to be an influence, a righteous influence in the lives of these girls. And so uh, it's it is important. And the reason I say that is because if you're trying to teach morality to the kids, but it's not backed up with your life, it will not be effective. You can't teach a morality to your students that you do not possess in your own life. You can't do that. So if I'm trying to encourage my kids to be faithful in the reading of God's word. I may not tell them, but they'll know if I'm really practicing at home what I preach. Or I may teach my kids to have a quiet time, and uh, that they. but if I don't do it myself, or I may teach them they should be in church and Sunday school, but if I'm not going there, or if I'm complaining about it or whatever, or if I'm teaching them that they should love their friends at school, but I bicker with my neighbors next door, they're going to see that, and that's going to speak to them. Do you understand what I'm saying? So your example is very powerful. So if these women are going to be teachers, their life has to be an example, a good example. Uh, and they teach with effort, with intention, with purpose. I personally don't think you can teach very well if you don't pray. I think it's an important part. And teaching has to be important. So this whole thing is, a, is an intentional focus. But how the church is blessed by that. Now, we're, we're praying, and, and Debbie, I appreciate your heart this morning and your prayer for those young people. I really do, because that's a good thing, because it means your heart's involved in that. And that's really that's really important. This, that's what makes it effective. They see that heart. They know that. That's why they answer to you, because they know you're concerned. And the Lord knows you're concerned, too. And that's, that's very important. And then finally, um, there is the encouragement of the young women. Um, John MacArthur says it means to call someone to be of a sound mind or be of self-control. There's the related couple of related words uh, in one chapter eight where the, the, the same, same idea is translated sensible. Um, in 1 Timothy 2.15, talks about women being preserved through the bearing of children that they continue in the faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. To be in charge of yourself, to be self-controlled, um, to be um, sitting, as it were, at, at 
sitting in control of the, the things that come across your desk, that you control what goes in your mind, you control what you put your time into. You're not a victim of the circumstances, but you are in the circumstances, season to use the word, using the circumstances for God's work and for God's glory. That's, that's really important. And so these are things that are important. Uh, and these older women have so much that they can contribute. Like I said earlier, we don't have any older women in this church. You only have older men. But these are things that all of us can profit from. And um, this, this teaching is so, so very, very important. The next time we're going to get to younger women because she talks about encouraging younger women. And we're going to look into that because he talks about that as well. But we'll do that next time. But these things that we've looked at, you, you know them already. Everything we've talked about, you know. But it's important to be reminded of it. It's basic. And just to, to remind ourselves of these things, because this is true, that is eternal truth. And, and uh, Paul, in King James translation, I think Peter talks about being grounded in the present truth. These things that, are, that relate to us in the present right now are very, very important. And they make a difference in our life and our usefulness in the hand of the master. So with that, let me close with prayer. Father, we do thank you for your mercy and your grace and your goodness to us. Thank you for this church, this family. We, we say it's a small church, but you're working in the hearts of the people. I can see that. That is a compliment. I, I know it's not because of me, but I can see you using it in the lives of people in spite of me. And I'm very thankful for that. And I'm thankful that you've chosen to work in our hearts and lives. You are the shepherd. And you're the one that is setting the course setting the uh, lamp before us in the word and giving us direction and you're the one that is reminding of these things help us to be faithful with the things that you put in our path and in our hands to you and help us to be impassioned with and in love with and in service to our blessed lord jesus christ and we just want to give you all the praise and honor and glory and i ask this in his name with thanksgiving amen